welcome back to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind featuring Dr. Michael Fernando and Dr. Josh Hurwitz. Michael, how are you today? I am good, Josh. We are back in the saddle. We're back uh, looking at the best and brightest from ESMO. So always excited. Always, especially on a sunny day. So today with ESMO, we are going to be talking about genitourinary cancers with a prime focus on that pesky prostate, say that a couple of times, I'll get it interesting, and a bladder cancer episode and something that I think is quite interesting, Michael, and I don't want to hold our listeners too soon, but this is a double antibody drug conjugate bonanza. So do you want to talk us about talk to us about your first trial? Absolutely. And for those of you keeping track or following a lot of the discourse around ESMO, you will note that there is a specific bladder trial that is not in this episode. Rest assured that will be coming later. But Josh, this study was just for you because this is the double antibody drug conjugate phase one trial, a combination of sasituzumab govotecan and enfortumab vedotin as greater than or equal to second line therapy for metastatic urothelial carcinoma. The reason it's aimed directly at Josh is because it's called the dad trial. Mike, I don't get it. Could you please explain to everyone why it's, why this is directed at me? That's very concerning, given that <laughs> given that the reason is that you're a dad. And if anyone can hear, my little daughter is squealing in the background, so uh, probably won't be able to edit that out. But if you hear her, she's very, very happy at this moment. At this moment, exactly. The dad trial, which I'm sure we're going to crack up every time we every time we say it. But anyway, the dad trial is a study that has done something that I have never seen before, and that is actually combine two antibody drug conjugates. It is interesting that it's not something that we've seen. The main thing was concerns about toxicity, the main reason that it potentially hasn't been tried before. But we combine chemotherapies all the time. So it is interesting that it's taken us this long to come to the idea that maybe we can combine these ADCs. Sasituzumab govotecan, or SG, and Imfortumab vedotin, or EV, are two ADCs that are usually used, up until recently, sequentially in the management of treatment-resistant metastatic urothelial cancer. This may change with the aforementioned glaring omission from this episode, that is EV302, the combination of Imfortumab vedotin and pembrolizumab in first-line treatment. We won't spoil that one, but it's looking very exciting. EV targets the Nectin-4 antibody and carries a monomethyl orostatin-E or MMAE payload, while SG targets TROP2 with an SN38, which is an irinotecan metabolite payload. Looking at the toxicity profiles, there is actually a minimal overlap of toxicity. EV is characterized by peripheral neuropathy, while SG is most notorious for hematological toxicity and GI toxicity. There is also the potential for synergy in the payloads because they attack different targets. So this has led to the rationale of combining these two study drugs in the treatment of heavily pretreated bladder cancer. The objectives of the DAD trial were to assess the safety and the minimum tolerated doses of the combination of SG and EV in patients with metastatic urothelial cancer. So this is a phase one study. Key inclusion criteria were metastatic or locally advanced urothelial carcinoma. They said they did allow other histologies, but they had to be predominantly urothelial. So maybe some papillary urothelial carcinoma. Patients had to have progressed on platinum and immunotherapy or progressed on one line of therapy 
While being ineligible for cisplatin, they had to have all of your usual organ functions as well. The key exclusion criteria, patients could not have small cell histology. They could not have active CNS metastases, ongoing toxicities of greater than or equal to two severity from prior therapy. They could obviously not have had prior EV or SG, and they could not have had uncontrolled diabetes, which was defined as an A1C of greater than 8% or 7 to 8% with diabetic symptoms. The schema, the way this study was set up is your fairly typical phase one trial. And for those who don't know, it's what we call the three by three model where you enroll three patients at a dose level, you check to see how they tolerate the dose through the uh, identification of dose limiting toxicities or DLTs. If the dose is well tolerated, a decision is made to either escalate or retain the current dose, and then you enroll three more patients. And then you repeat the process until you have identified the maximum tolerated dose, at which point the decision is made that the toxicities are likely to outweigh any benefit due to treatment delays, treatment cessation, that sort of thing. In the case of this study, the DLTs identified, and in every phase one study, DLTs are specifically identified, were neutropenic fever, thrombocytopenic bleeding, grade three neuropathy, any other non-grade three hematological toxicity lasting greater than one week or requiring a three-week interruption of therapy. So that was the primary endpoint, which is safety. The secondary endpoints were overall response rate, progression-free survival, and overall survival. In order to be enrolled in the analysis, patients had to receive cycle one, day one of the drug. They were really looking at the combination and trying to minimize the possibility of getting data only from one drug. Both sasetizumab, govotecan, and enfortimab vedotin were given on day one and eight of a 21-day cycle. In terms of patient demographics, it's your fairly standard bladder cancer cohort. Patients were 70 years old, predominantly male, predominantly white, ECOG performance status of zero, with 70% having pure urethelial histopathology. 23 patients in total. So like most phase one studies, it's fairly small. In terms of the number of lines of therapy, 11 patients or 48% of the total cohort had had two and a further 11 patients, roughly 50%, had had between three and five. So this is a heavily pretreated cohort. Metastatic sites, patients most commonly had disease in the bones and liver, but, but other sites of disease included kidneys, lungs, and lymph nodes. So in terms of the results, you had three dose levels with dose level three being the full standard dose of the drugs given as monotherapy. That is 10 milligrams per kilogram and 1.2 milligrams per kilogram for SG and EV respectively. At this level, toxicity is quite significant. So there were three incidences of dose-limiting toxicities and all six patients in this cohort because they took three and then they did what we call an expansion cohort to confirm those findings. So six patients in this uh, highest dose level, dose level three, all required GCSF support. Dose level two was actually much better tolerated with only one DLT. And so if any phase two trials examine this combination, that's going to be the recommended dose. That's eight mil milligrams per kilogram of SG, 1.25 milligrams per kilogram of EV. However, despite the severity, as one would expect, there were no new safety signals or toxicities in the combination arm compared to the monotherapy arm. So it's basically the toxicities of SG and EV combined. There was one grade five pneumonitis, 
which was possibly related to EV, but the patient also had concomitant um, infectious and underlying comorbidities that could have contributed. In terms of the overall response rate, this is very good in a heavily pre-treated cohort of, of 70% overall. That's across all of the dose levels. Interestingly, it was actually lowest in the high dose level. That's the full dose of both drugs at 50%. It was 78% in dose level one and 75% in dose level two. One would suspect that's because in the lower dose levels, people actually got more of the drug. In conclusion, this is a really interesting trial, Josh, because as mentioned, it is the first trial to examine the safety and feasibility of combining ADCs, which, you know, we've espoused the virtues of ADCs and how they're going to be the future of oncology. And so combining them might actually add to our armamentarium. There were no new safety signals of the combination compared to monotherapy and There are further studies investigating EV and SG alone or in combination with IO, which is called the DADIO trial, which I just think is fantastic. Given the findings of EV302, this combination is unlikely to be a feasible approach in urothelial cancer unless we're talking about a potential triplet of SG, EV, Pembro, which I think would be incredibly toxic, but anyway. But it could be a potential avenue of investigation in other tumor streams as well. But this is a very interesting avenue of investigation. You're so correct, Michael. The one thing I did want to flag, though, is that there's a number of patients who've already received single-agent immunotherapy who are now switching to infortimab vedodin as a single agent. So in the immediate setting, maybe there is a small chance, a small slither of hope they could do a phase two trial if they get their act together quite quickly because there is that cohort of patients currently who would probably be able to enroll and you could have that standard of care as an EV301 or, you know, infortimab vedodin. So I would find that quite interesting to see. Yeah, and let's not forget that there are always going to be more ADCs being produced as targets are identified. So maybe there'll be a quicker uptake of combination investigation thanks to this trial. Maybe. All right, so I'm going to discuss Keynote 641, not Checkmate but Keynote 641, which is pembrolizumab plus enzalutamide for patients with metastatic carcerate-resistant prostate cancer. This was a randomized, double-blind, phase 3 trial. Note we have now switched to the land of prostate, no longer bladder. Inclusion criteria, you had to have carcerate-resistant prostate cancer. You were allowed prior abiraterone, no previous chemotherapy, and had to have a good ECOG performance status, and no prior exposure to the other androgen receptor signaling inhibitors, which as the current landscape stands is enzalutamide, apalutamide, or my favorite, darolutamide. Patients were randomized one-to-one to to Pembro plus enzalutamide or placebo plus enzalutamide with the dual primary endpoints being overall survival and radiographic progression-free survival. Couple of small issues, Michael, with this trial so far. First of all, they found that doublet therapy in the metastatic carcerate-sensitive space is better than single agent. And while they've said confirmed metastatic carcerate-resistant and having prior abiraterone permitted, there's lots of other patients who are already on doublet therapy, which would make them ineligible for this trial. The other thing to talk about is there was a phase two crossover trial, which actually found that abiraterone, then enzalutamide did show some ongoing evidence of efficacy, but enzalutamide, then abiraterone did not. In Australia, you cannot use two androgen receptor signaling inhibitors sequentially because there's not enough evidence for our government to support this. Looking at the baseline characteristics, well-balanced, 
12% had visceral disease, very few had liver mets, and most patients had received abiraterone previously in both arms. The primary endpoint, which was overall survival, was not statistically significant, and with the 18-month overall survival being 63.6% in the pembrolizumab arm, versus 64% in the enzalutamide arm. When you look at the progression-free survival, there was overlapping but not statistically significant either in this particular setting. And when you look at the key secondary endpoints, the time to initiation of, of first subsequent anti-cancer therapy, there was no difference between either of those arms. They did find a slightly higher complete response rate in the pembrolizumab arm of 7.4 versus 2.7, with the adverse events also being higher in the pembrolizumab arm with 18% experience of rash versus 4% in the enzalutamide arm. So it was ceased early due to fertility, but I did want to bring it up because it raises an interesting question being this is a trial not really against standard of care because they've already progressed through the standard of care. So my question is, what should they have used? And maybe chemotherapy, maybe something else. So I didn't really love that, but I can understand why they did that. The second thing to talk about is that at the moment, we don't have the biomarkers we need to figure out who's going to respond properly to prostate cancer. And I think that is still unknown. There is obviously some evidence because you can see that with a complete response, but we just need to select our patients better, which is going to probably help predict the future use of immunotherapy in this landscape. Yeah, it's tricky because immunotherapy, we talk about how immunotherapy hasn't quite gotten into prostate cancer or uh, hepatobiliary cancer, but it really doesn't seem to work in prostate cancer. The prostate seems to be quite a cold, uh, immunologically cold organs. So I guess this isn't really surprising, but a bit frustrating that we still don't have a means to heat up, make prostate cancer more um, immunologically reactive. I know there have been studies combining it with lutetium, but we're not quite there yet. I like the word heat up, Michael. I'm going to use that. I want to heat up your prostate and make it sensitive to immunotherapy. Yeah, make, sh- make sure you've got a good relationship with the patient before you say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll, I'll wait. Yeah, anyway, either way. Good why rapport. Don't we move- <laughs> good rapport. Michael, tell us about your next study. Absolutely. Moving right along. Uh, the next study is another prostate study, and it's a final analysis of the magnitude study, which is a study comparing abiraterone plus prednisolone plus niraparib, which is a PARP inhibitor, as first-line therapy in patients with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer and a homologous recombination repair or HRR gene alteration. So this is a three-year update and final analysis. In terms of the background, patients with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer and HRR alterations, especially BRCA1 or more commonly BRCA2, have poorer outcomes. Magnitude is one of several studies that have investigated the combination of a PARP and novel antiandrogen, in this case abiraterone, as first-line therapy in this population. At primary analysis, Magnitude demonstrated significant improvement in radiographic PFS with a hazard ratio of 0.53 that was statistically significant. The data presented at ESMO was the final overall survival analysis, focusing on patients with BRCA mutations. So 225 patients were enrolled in this study. In terms of eligibility, patients had to have untreated metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer with one caveat. If they had been started on abiraterone by their oncologist, they had to have less than four months of 
prior treatment uh, in the castration setting. This basically was allowing time for assays to come through and for patients with HRR deficiencies to be uh, identified. They had to have a good ECOG status and patients were stratified according to whether they had prior taxane-based chemo for castration-sensitive prostate cancer, whether they'd had previous abiraterone or other novel antiandrogens for either castration-resistant or castration-sensitive disease, and whether they had either a BRCA1-2 or other HRR gene alterations. Patients were allocated to be either in a homologous repair biomarker positive or biomarker negative and were randomized to receive either niraparib or placebo along with abiraterone and prednisolone. The primary endpoint was radiographic progression-free survival, which has already been met as mentioned. Secondary endpoints were overall survival, time to symptomatic progression, time to cytotoxic chemotherapy, and safety. In terms of patient demographics, these are fairly well balanced, though there are a couple of things to note. Specifically, that patients in the placebo arm had a numerically smaller number of patients who had higher risk features. So this is an ECOG performance status of 1, 28.6 versus 38.9 in the combination arm, bone metastases, 83 versus 87%, and visceral metastases, 19 versus 23%. So patients in the placebo arm do on average appear to be at lower risk, but you know it, it is smaller numbers. The median treatment duration was 20.5 months in the experimental arm compared to 14.4 months in the control arm. And the long and the short of it is that the overall survival was better in the combination arm compared to the placebo arm. The time to symptomatic progression and the time to cytotoxic chemotherapy were also better. And you're looking across the board at hazard ratios around 0.6, and they are all statistically significant. Of note, it is important to note when you're thinking about the overall survival data that in the placebo arm, about a third of patients did have uh, subsequent PARP inhibitors, which might reduce the effect, although the ongoing overall survival benefit does suggest that earlier combination and earlier treatment with a PARP inhibitor is better than sequential. In terms of safety, there were no new uh, safety signals. There were the expected higher rates of hematological hematological toxicity, which is consistent with side effects related to PARP inhibitors. There were no cases of AML or MDS identified, which is what everyone's always worried about with PARP inhibitors. Interestingly, and this is something that has been present in other combination trials with PARP inhibitors and novel antiandrogens, there was a numerically higher number of pulmonary embolisms in the combination arm. Not really sure why, and it's relatively small numbers, but it is something that we're seeing consistently across studies. So in conclusion, there is a continued benefit in the addition of a PARP inhibitor to a novel antiandrogen, and this could be considered a new standard of care. Hey, Michael, can I ask a question? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you have the answer to this. There's been a number of other studies that have looked at a pretty similar combination. I think there's the Propel study and the Talapro 2. Talapro was with telazoparib and enzalidomide. And I think the Propel was Olaparib and Abiraterone. How does this, this new study marry into the pre-existing data? The short answer is, because this was discussed in the um, post-presentation discussion, that it's difficult to actually compare across studies, even more so than usual. The three studies, that's Propel, Talapro 2, and this one, Magnitude, used different gene panels, different assays, and also had different study designs. 
So comparison is different, but what we're seeing is that multiple combinations have now been tested and they all do seem to have a benefit. You're going to find it very difficult to come to a consensus as to which is best. So it probably comes down to what's available, what you can get access to, and which PARP inhibitor or novel antiandrogen you have the most experience with. A very, very wise, wise answer, but also very much sitting on the fence. I love it. Yep, that's that's where we like to sit. The one last point I will make with this study, and it's probably the main takeaway, is test your prostate patients. It's getting to the point now we have a significant enough burden of evidence. We're really looking, or we really should be looking at testing patients at the onset of castration resistance, looking specifically to identify these, these homologous repair deficiencies because it can change the course of your management. It can add another line of therapy. Although how this combination, how this idea of combination will fit into the emerging landscape of using novel antiandrogens earlier, specifically in the castration-sensitive space, that remains to be seen. Although we do know that you can probably use PARP inhibitors as monotherapy as well. Josh, we've got one more study to go through. So why don't you wrap it up and wrap it up fast? I do love a good uh, final article. I must admit this article wins for the best speaker to date. His name is Dr. Oliver Sator and he just oozed enthusiasm and charisma for this trial. So this is a phase three study looking at letitian PSMA in taxane naive patients with metastatic carcerate resistant prostate cancer with the title of the study called PSMA4, F-O-R-E. So what's the background? We know letitian works. It's a beta emitter, meaning that the beta particles can destroy wherever they're deposited. So PSMA attaches to the PSMA receptor on the cancer cell. It's internalized by endocytosis. It releases letitium and then the cancer cell goes kaput. This study was those that have castrate-resistant prostate cancer that's metastatic with measurable disease and now taxane-naive, meaning they've never had docetaxel or cabazitaxel except in the neo or adjuvant setting. They had to have a good performance status and no prior PARP exposure. They're randomized one-to-one to letitium or androgen receptor signaling inhibitor or processing inhibitor, they call it, which is abiraterone or enzalutamide. And crossover was allowed upon radiographic progression by blinded independent clinical review, which does skew our results somewhat. So there were a number of analyses, and this was the updated second interim analysis. And the primary endpoint, Michael, was radiographic progression-free survival. There will be a test at the end of my section. And 585 people were screened and 547 people received PSMA PETs and 92% of them were positive, which is an incredibly high number of patients with PSMA avid disease. They were randomized and 51 discontinued in the letitium arm and 146 in the RC arm or the receptor signaling inhibitor arm. And the baseline characteristics were quite equal. And in case I didn't mention it, they had had previous exposure to androgen receptor signaling inhibitor. So the standard of care arm had switched to another androgen receptor signaling inhibitor. When we look at the baseline characteristics, pretty good between the two arms. Most patients had had prior abiraterone exposure, about 50% in both arms, and enzalutamide was about 40% in each of those arms. What they found is that the radiographic progression-free survival was statistically significant with a hazard ratio of 0.41, and the updated Kaplan-Meier curve was 0.43. And the in the events, if you had a look, 49% in the letitium PSMA arm, which is essentially having new disease, and 71% in the androgen receptor signaling inhibitor. 
median progression free survival was 12.02 months versus 5.59 months. So you saw a doubling of the time of these patients. Mind you, data is limited with switching abiraterinal and zalutamide. So that's an area I think of controversy, but it's something just to consider with this. Most of the forest plot analyses also favored letitium and they found increasing objective response rates of about 50.7% in letitium and 14.9% in the androgen receptor signaling inhibitor change, which is not not expected. I think that's the thing because only certain people will respond. They found that there was an increase in PSA drop in the letitium arm. They found that there was better quality of life in the letitium arm. There was fewer symptomatic skeletal events in the letitium arm. Michael, there is very much a theme here. And if you look at the overall survival, it crossed the confidence interval because there was a massive crossover of something like 84% of the standard of care arm. So while you can't really interpret that, it's like 19.25 versus 19.55 months. I think if you look at the progression-free survival, you can very reassuringly say that this is actually a beneficial trial, but it's a bit difficult when you look at the statistical numbers. Adverse events were better in the letitium arm with the main ones being dry mouth and some stomatitis as well in the letitium arm along with asthenia and nausea. My conclusion for this trial is as follows. There was definitely progression-free survival that was statistically significant. We also found that letitium now works earlier in our utilization of treatment and has better quality of life for our patients. There's ongoing questions about how to sequence this. And I think until such time as we have more and more treatments, it's going to be difficult. But I think moving this up to second line, which is what they're kind of indicating here, is definitely an option. Mind you, this is carcerate resistant. So I assume that means that these patients have now progressed on abiraterone, thus their definition. And it's an exciting time to be in genitourinary cancers. But I think that concludes our time in genitourinary land, Michael, unless you had any more questions. The PSMA study is interesting for all of the reasons that you've described. And while the idea of crossover is a good thing to do from a patient well-being perspective, it can be a little bit frustrating when you're looking at pure numbers. But I think that the question we have to ask, would that change your desire to give a patient PSMA? Well, I can tell you it's certainly not doing that in Australia where the uptake of PSMA is far outstripping the supply. So it will be interesting to see if this continues to grow as a treatment modality. Josh, do you want to tell everyone what we're doing next time? I would love to tell everyone and trust me, we're going to do it, I promise. We're going to do the biliary and upper GI cancers. And it was actually a pretty exciting field uh, this year. I think there's some quite interesting developments, some second generation drugs as well, which will be really, really worthwhile uh, for certain cancer types. And so we will see you tomorrow with that. I'll see you then. Thank you for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website, along with weekly posts, resources, and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonk.com. That's inquisitiveonk.com. Yeah.